Hi, I'm Robin Birkin and welcome to the Fertility Warriors podcast, a place for women struggling to conceive to find emotional support, conception advice and real talk. To me, being a warrior means true glory is in rising every time we fall, having the courage to be afraid and being ready for whatever challenges cross our path. So welcome, warrior. You're on your way. I promise to support and guide you on every single episode. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Fertility Warriors podcast. I am so pleased to have you here and thank you so much for tuning in to me every single week. It is my great pleasure today to bring you one of the people who I have connected with just recently and who we keep connecting and I just think to myself all the time, oh my God, Elizabeth and I are so similar in what we believe, in what we are trying to achieve. And I just had to invite Liz onto the podcast. Liz has recently released this book and I read the book. I was so proud to be able to have a little bit of a sneak peek at her book. And it was just amazing, like Hello Fish Tacos uh, and things like that. We're going to chat all about that on the podcast. We're going to talk all about the very best diet for you to go on when you are undergoing IVF. I'm not going to talk too much more about Liz because I'm going to get her to chat to you and tell you what it is all about. So without further ado, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Robin. That was so sweet. I love that introduction. (laughs) Thank you. And so I just love doing these podcast interviews because I get to connect with a lot of people who are very well qualified in their field, but also at various places across the world. So here I am, as you guys know, in Perth, in Western Australia, and Liz is all the way in Ontario with her lovely jumper and a hot cup of coffee. That's right. It is full on winter here at this moment. I think it's your beautiful summer evening and it's winter morning here. (laughs) We are in the middle of a heat wave at the moment. So every day at the moment for the next four days is 40 degrees Celsius, which I think is like 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So it is freaking hot. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about what you do, where you're at, what's going on with you and what is your, I guess, field of specialty? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a naturopathic doctor and I own an integrated fertility and family care practice in Guelph, Ontario, which is just west of Toronto. And uh, my team and I offer our integrated fertility care program, which is called Well-Conceived Fertility Method. And that's an evidence-based program designed to help women and couples enhance their fertility, enrich their future child's health potential by starting with care and during preconception and, and feel empowered in their journey with knowledge that they can apply right away with their clinical care and their self-care. And we offer coaching and community, which are which are just so needed in what can be a very stressful and isolating journey, as uh, many of your podcast episodes that I've enjoyed so much have also referenced. And now in addition to working clinically and locally with patients, I now offer a global fertility consultation stream for those who live outside 
of the province where I'm licensed to practice in my profession. I do offer a consultation style approach where you're not my patient per se, but I can provide opinions and guidance and look at the evidence-based decision-making with you to help people on their journey because the amount of information out there can be terribly overwhelming and not all of it's going to be applicable to one individual. So I really want to help, help people get that individualized approach no matter where they are in the world. And I love that. Sometimes here in Australia, some of our legal things can be a bit fuzzy or our guidelines. And I get lots of people who come onto the podcast, but and then people reach out to them and wanting their second opinion or just another set of eyes from someone who sits and looks at this all day long. So I love that you're able to provide consultations online as well. And you are also now an author. <laughs> yes, that's right. As we're recording this, the book came out just last week. <laughs> so um, it's a new, it's a new book, baby. And oh. it's um, we're we're having a launch today at my local public library, which is very exciting. Yeah. And uh, yes, it's very it's very neat to hold the book in print format. I know you didn't get it in that format; you got a, a PDF format. But it's really neat to have that tactile experience with the book too. Yeah. Oh, I can only imagine, especially if you've obviously spent so much time, so much back and forth. Now, can you tell us the name of your book and where you can find it? We're going to start with that because that's where we're going to start diving into in this podcast. Yes, it's called IVF Meal Plan and it's available wherever books are sold. So if you buy books online, you'll find them in some shops. I'm not sure for your Australian listeners exactly if we're going to be exclusively online or in shops but in the US and Canada for sure it'll be available in both. That's awesome I think that's so important that we start looking at diet and so let's start talking about what style of diet is the best diet for women about to undergo IVF. Yeah that's such a good question. Well we have from a good pool of scientific literature from the past 10, 15 years now that the Mediterranean style diet is a good pattern. So if a dietary pattern is going to come up in the literature as having a beneficial effect on fertility, it is invariably the Mediterranean style diet. And there are reasons for that because of what the Mediterranean diet contains and doesn't contain typically. What I love about you, what I love about your book is that it is based on the science and the research. It is not based on quick fixes and fads and things that go against common sense. I mean, common sense aside, it's actually based yeah. on what the research says. So can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is the Mediterranean diet? Yeah, the Mediterranean diet looks like this. It is for protein. It's rich in protein, but it has a stronger emphasis on fish, seafood, and poultry than on red meat or pork. It is rich in extra virgin olive oil, which is a good source of omega-9 fatty acids, and it's an anti-inflammatory oil, which we love, anti-inflammatory foods, right? And uh, it's rich in vegetables. It has fruit for dessert. It's very low in processed flour products like white flour cakes pastries it tends to have more fruits as as dessert 
It has more legumes than flour products or, or grain products. And for fertility reasons, we go easy on the red wine, but that is um, traditionally one, one component of, of the Mediterranean diet. <laughs> and, and generally, it's, it's a whole foods diet. It's got a lot of variety. It's got a lot of bright colors. And uh, it's delicious. So it's very, it's very exciting that, that that is the pattern that also has, has shown up in the literature as being beneficial to fertility. So it's not like any kind of crazy, crazy diet. It's like what you would think in your head would be, I guess, generally the most healthy diet. <laughs> yes, well, that, that's interesting too because in one study where folks that were dealing with infertility are going through IVF and they were they just sort of retroactively looked at what they were eating in reference to did people conceive and did they bring home a baby. And eating a Mediterranean-style diet was definitely correlated with having a baby, so having successful IVF, compared to a typical healthy diet. So most people going through IVF are not eating a really bad diet because they're taking it seriously and they've probably been told, eat healthy, eat healthy. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're consciously going through this process, so they're already trying to do what they can do. Right. And nobody would eat a whole bunch of junk food on purpose, I don't think, going into their IBM. But traditional healthy diet, the way we, um, at least kind of in Western or North American, um, I can't speak to Oz necessarily, but it's much higher in breads. It's like breakfast is bagels and toast and cereal and lunch is sandwiches or pizza and dinner is like pasta and, and maybe or steak. So, not that there's anything wrong with any of those foods in general once in a while or whatever, but the pattern of like typical, and I'm using air quotes here, (laughs) typical healthy diet isn't necessarily beneficial to fertility at all. It was just neutral. So if you want to promote fertility, the one diet from the literature is the Mediterranean style diet. And that's probably because typical healthy diet still contains more grains, which can cause inflammation or blood sugar issues or insulin resistance. And they're, they're often stripped of nutrients and the more processed the product is. So if it's processed into flour from a whole grain and then it's bleached, then it's even more inflammation causing. And then the amount of insulin and sugar that you take in is going to also have its own inflammation boosting effect. So just the grain focus itself is one piece. It also displaces some nutrients that are very important for the fertility diet, which are iron and omega-3 fats or beneficial fats like monounsaturated olive oil. And it replaces them instead with more carbohydrate that lacks additional nutrients kind of attached in with that little package. So for example, legumes is a much richer food source in terms of nutrients like iron, like some protein and some B vitamins and folate versus like a bread that contains the same amount of maybe fiber, even if it's a whole grain, but is lower in the nutrient scale and it's higher in the carbs. So that's probably why Mediterranean style diet is just hitting the mark on a generally what most people benefit from and what, what studies over since the nurse's health study and onward have have shown to be beneficial for fertility. Mm-hmm. I actually love that you've mentioned that because I put together the meal plans for the membership and you mentioned that some foods displace 
things like iron. And every time I'm putting together the meal plans, I'm trying to get the iron up there and I'm like, whoa, this is hard. Like, And people just would not know without something like a meal plan or something like that. You think that you're doing the right things and sometimes I'll start, you know, putting in recipes through the program and you just don't realise that actually no way that's never going to hit the mark that you need for correct iron. And it's exactly what you say, you know, like I'll start adding in the chickpeas and things like that because I'm trying to get those nutrients up. So, you know, I can't agree with that more. So when we look at the literature and the research that is out there, can you tell me a little bit about, I guess, generally about the research that's out there? Is there more research at the moment on women doing IVF? Like why IVF meal plan? Yes, I think it's because this this was identified, in fact, by the publisher as an area that is needed in space. And so that's based on their literature, or I should say their data, where they can observe that people are looking for that or searching for that yeah. in their in their channels or their or they're posting kind of questions or comments about other books indicating that they need something about nutrition and food. So the book does focus largely on foods. There's a bit of a chapter on supplements, but I think I think supplementation is a whole other specific discussion and an individual. It's a minefield. Yeah. yeah. And we know we have to eat and we know there are, again, correlations between fertility success and IVF success, specifically with certain ways of eating and certain nutrient uh, profiles in the diet. I think why is there more research with, with IVF? It's because there's more writing on it. It's because it's expensive. It's because it's intensive. And that just, just means that enough people are kind of showing up for this procedure in a clinical context where the data can be gathered and, and conditions can be controlled such that the study will have meaningful results. It's really just about almost like procedures around studies and mm-hmm. and the reason why we really want to know what helps it work is because it is so it's so costly and um, mm. it's such an investment for, for the body but also financially and so on. And when we look at the science and we look at what is out there that's telling us you know, what's working and what's not working with regards to diet. Is it more along the lines of don't do this or is it more along the lines of actually you need to be adding lots of this into your diet? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I would say it's it's pretty much both because for both male and – so there's studies on both male and female fertility. There's studies that look at IVF specifically. IVF outcomes are pretty clear, either pregnant or not, you either have a baby or you don't. So those are relatively simple outcomes to create statistics around. Then for male fertility, of course, because you have the look at the actual cells and the semen analysis, the the whole idea of what are men eating when their semen parameters look bad on tests Mm. and what are they eating if if their semen parameters look good and they're fertile. So we know that. What we don't have is you put someone on a diet and you follow exactly what they eat or you give them the food and you know they're only eating that food and then they do IVF. So that's that's like a prospective study. It's like a randomized controlled trial style, but we don't have that with nutrition. 
because people have to eat and it's, it's not about giving one drug or one substance. It's you're living in a real world, right? So that's why the data are always retroactive. And that's why the statistics aren't, uh, they don't tell us like, if you don't eat a Mediterranean diet, you will not get pregnant. It's not about that, right? Mm-hmm. It's just when we see in big populations, like multiple thousands of people or tens of thousands of people who've gone through IVF or had fertility challenges and not, and we see what was this successful group eating more of, what was the, success, the unsuccessful group eating more of, and we compare them, mm-hmm. there are specific differences. So it's really like with Mediterranean, those foods that I just outlined, it's going to be low in trans fat, mm-hmm. which is like found in hydrogenated oils and some fryer oils and um, anything that's shortening, like in, it's found in pastries in the modern world, but whereas like actually larger butter would be much healthier if you need a pastry um, to, to make that dough. <laughs> we can talk about that next. And it's low in fried oils and it's low in sugar, refined sugar. And once you've got those foods out, it's really just whole foods that you've got left and they look like they do in nature. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's what it's all about. It's like, how do you find the, the foods that look as close as possible to how they do in nature? And then make them taste delicious and cook them in a way that enhances that so that you can actually enjoy your food as you're going into IVF. And it's a way to take care of yourself and have pleasure. And feels like you're eating normal food and not, yes. you know, like these weird concoctions that if people are trying to make <laughs> to make healthy food. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Or like eating pineapple all day, every day, or like whatever it might be. You don't have to. You don't have to feel restricted or ostracized from society when you're preparing for your idea. Yeah. So I always love talking about this. Let's talk about dairy and gluten and how this fits in with your IVF meal plan. Yeah. Well, dairy and gluten are definitely optional in all of the recipes. So for those who eat dairy, we have one option. And for those who do not, we have another option. And I would say, you know, in clinical practice, so it's been, it's been almost 10 years now as we record this, working with people with food for, you know, medicinal reasons and, and treatment reasons. And dairy and gluten are the top two intolerances that we see out there. They're the top two that come up on food intolerance testing, which is an antibody test, blood test that picks up levels of antibodies that are being made by our own immune system in an inappropriate level, which means that whenever our our immune system sees that food, like when we ingest it and absorb it into our bloodstream, the immune system is treating it like a foreign invading, like germ or virus or bacteria. This is creating an inappropriate inflammatory response to a food because a food will never create an infection. And so when we have that inflammation being triggered by our immune system that remembers, that molecule remembers, we've got to make a big response here. So it's going to release histamine and it's going to get, bring it a little swollen or puffy. I know that I'm, you know, I specifically have genes for gluten intolerance. And when I have had my food intolerance testing, I have gluten, I I make my body makes gluten antibodies in a high level. And if I occasionally have gluten, like if my mother-in-law makes 
peach pie it, once a year in August when here in Ontario, that is like the most, like that is the thing that is, you know, we look forward to all year. Then the next day I'll wake up and my ring will be like I'll have, uh, a line where my ring is, my wedding okay. ring, because I'm puffy. So imagine if you are eating foods like, like those and you are intolerant to them or you are inflamed in response to them, you're just fanning the flames of inflammation on a chronic basis a little bit every day. So that distracts the body from all the energy that it could be using to direct toward that clear state of being, toward that receptive uterine environment, toward you having energy and you know, being able to choose your, your thoughts much more readily so that you mm. feel less stressed and so that you can feel more empowered and, you know, just more uplifted even through what could otherwise be a very difficult journey. There's a cost to eating those kind of foods. And the other thing that happens is both dairy and gluten tend to be high in carbohydrate. So gluten-rich foods are breads and pastas and crackers, and they just tend to put a whole bunch of carb into the mix and that stimulates our insulin. But dairy products, even though they contain protein, they also stimulate our insulin more so than other foods with protein. So that's why women with something like PCOS might do better off dairy. That's why people that have generally inflammation-related conditions, endometriosis, or something autoimmune, Hashimoto's thyroiditis is, is quite um, sensitive, we have found, to gluten. Gluten will make Hashimoto's worse. The antibodies levels will be worse. So it's aggravating an already inflamed body. And because food is something that we kind of take in in a relatively large quantity every single day, a couple times a day, by tweaking foods, something like dairy and gluten is a very simple and like zero cost way to see how you feel with those out. And, you know, it's, like we've talked about before we set up our, our call, we, it's really not that hard. And it's not like you have to give up something that you love for life. You know, it's, it's just a period of time and let your body be the test. If you don't have access to the test, the testing itself, let your body be the best test. That's the best one anyways. How do you feel when you eat those foods? How do you feel when they're out for break? And, you know, what could you enjoy instead? For me, like dairy just does not agree with me but do you feel like let's say I ate dairy every day that it's almost like your body kind of I don't know like the physical response that you would get or the outward response that you would get is dulled a little bit because your body is almost like tolerating it but then on the inside there's still all of this inflammation raging inside yes I've seen that happen clinically kind of the reverse of that. So let's say a woman determined she was going to eliminate dairy and gluten, or let's say we did a food intolerance test and we took out those foods for a time, for six weeks, let's say. Then let's say she really missed one of those foods and she decided to bring it back in. So what I suggest is have that food a couple of days in a row because you want to just, if there's going to be a response, you want to feel it. We're not talking about life-threatening allergies. It's not like your throat's going to swell closed but you might feel other symptoms like fog, like bloating, like irritability, like fatigue, headaches. It could really affect any system of the body. That's why the symptoms can be so variable or varied, or you might have a really hard period. It might be very painful cramping. And when 
but when the foods are out, you had a better period. Mm-hmm. So those kinds of symptoms are really important to watch. But then when you bring that food back in, typically the response is going to be more prominent. And that's simply because your immune system has still a lot of antibodies in circulation. And those are now empty antibodies. And they're looking for a partner antigen or the protein from that food to partner up with. And as soon as they get a nice influx of that, it's a whole bunch of unbound antibody binding with the antigen. So you're getting like an inflammation party right in the body like boom explosion and that's why you feel it more acutely at that stage so that's why conversely if you're eating a little bit every day those antibodies are yes active they're filled up though so you're you're probably just adapted it's not that you're less intolerant to it it's just that you're adapted to that more chronic state of inflammation Would you like to learn what some of the latest research says about how to drastically improve the success rates of IVF and IUI cycles? I bet you would, because if you can drastically improve your success rates, and I mean like double your success rates, then that means hopefully less IVF cycles, less time, less cost, and less heartache for you and the quicker chance of having your baby in your arms in the future. If you would like to know how to double your chances of conceiving, even if you are over 35, and if you're going through IVF, IUI, or even if you're trying naturally, then I would love you to jump into my free masterclass where I'll share what some of the latest research says about maximizing your IVF success. So, Come and find me at robinburkin.com slash workshop where you can sign up to receive instant access to my workshop, robinburkin.com slash workshop. So you would recommend that everyone just tries cutting it out for a little bit and then seeing what their periods are like, seeing what it feels like off that? I don't know that I would say necessarily everyone, but... If you intuitively suspect, oh, that could be a thing for me, why not just try it? It's not going to cost you anything, right? And I want everyone to be in tune with what is right for her. And don't guess, test. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And a valid test is the elimination of the food, see how you feel. The reintroduction of the food, see how you feel. It's as simple as that. You can do blood testing if you feel like it would make your kind of brain feel like, okay, (laughs) I got to get these out then. (laughs) But again, like sometimes you're intolerant to food and it doesn't show up on a test in that way. Mm -hmm. Test is very specific to antibodies. So some Mm -hmm. people don't tolerate dairy. They simply get gas and bloating when they eat it. And that might not be due to antibodies. That might be because they don't digest lactose or they don't break down efficiently the proteins in the, in the milk. But by the time they absorb it, maybe they're not. Mm-hmm. Maybe their system isn't making an antibody. So every test has its limitations, but I just want women to feel so connected to their body and so respectful of what their system is communicating through symptoms and honor that. And if that's something that, that folks are interested in doing, you can follow IVF meal plan. You can follow Robin's recipes. There are so many foods that don't contain dairy or gluten out there. So there aren't any studies that are really about gluten per se. There are some around dairy. What the data says about dairy is 
that if you're going to have it, it should be full fat dairy. Now, what I recommend around that is that if you're going to have deer, it should be full fat and organic or grass fed Mm -hmm. cattle producing that milk. And for wheat, the other thing about it is that, okay, wheat is not a GMO. It's not a genetically modified organism, but it is sprayed with Roundup to desiccate it. Okay. So that's like a farming practice, at least here in, in North America, this is what's done. Non-organic wheat sprayed with Roundup, which is a very toxic pesticide, and it has been shown to mess with fertility. So then your wheat, your bread, is is now contaminated right before it's harvested with Roundups. There's no way you're not taking in traces of Roundup with with bread, especially if it's not, or with wheat, especially if it's not organic. So if you're going to have gluten, try organic and see how you feel. But again, it's so easy to replace dairy and gluten foods with foods that are at least as nutritious. And again, for certain populations like Hashimoto's with gluten, PCOS with dairy, those could be specific conditions that may actually benefit therapeutically from having those foods eliminated. Let's talk about detoxing. So I know that in your six-week program, you have like a whole section on detoxing. And I know that you've studied a lot about, I guess, like toxicology, things like that. How important is it that we do some kind of detox in, you know, the sort of prenatal stages? I think it's so important. I remember when I was a student and there was a study that we talked about in one of my rotations where there were uh, a group of about a dozen newborns, U.S. born babies. And what they did was they took a sample of blood from their umbilical cords. So mm. once the cord was clamped, mm-hmm. you had a cord and they, they looked at the range of chemicals present in that blood. So this is basically before they breathed a, you know, a few breaths of air on earth. It's literally reflecting what has come through mom's bloodstream and delivered to the baby. So there was an average of about 200 chemicals in every single baby's cord blood. And this was just so shocking to me and so sad and unfair and just atrocious. And um, the, the, the families were not living in particularly now-included areas. They were just, you know, living what we would call a typical American lifestyle or environment. And yet study after study um, has found these types of chemicals, these contaminants that are completely man-made, they're synthetic, they don't, they never were part of the earth from before the industrial revolution. So it's in the past a couple hundred years that over 85,000 chemicals have been synthesized. And, and put into the environment. So they cannot help but eventually make it universally around the world because of, you know, it's going into groundwater. It's going, it, if we ingest it, it's going into our waste, which goes into the sewers. And then it's, those chemicals aren't taken out of drinking water. It's just treated for bacteria and, you know, a few heavy metals usually. And then it's evaporated and it goes in the ocean and the clouds. And these chemicals like PCBs, 
and dioxins are concentrated even in the poles of the earth where it's colder because of the differences in air pressure, meaning that PCBs and dioxins are found in breast milk of Inuit people Mm. and in like seal fat and Mm. whale fat. And so the, the level of toxin exposure is universal. We are being exposed to micro doses of toxins absolutely every day. It's unavoidable. But there's one thing that I took home from my undergrad in toxicology. It's that miraculously the body is equipped with systems to eliminate these from our own tissues. The catch here is that those systems are made of nutrients. They're built from protein and vitamins and minerals, literally. That's, mm-hmm. that's all they're made from. And our genes know how to build them, but they can only build them if they're given the right building blocks. And that's why when we're talking about detox, I always do nourishing or nutrition first, make sure you're built up, and then you have the, the building blocks that it's going to take to allow your body to detoxify naturally so that those chemicals don't just kind of get swirled up and but like get stuck. It's kind of like, you know, if I were to open up my desk drawer and then it's like a messy jumbly drawer in there and I took all that stuff out of the drawer, cleaned up the drawer, but I threw it all over my office. <laughs> <laughs> and and I yeah, and then my then that compartment is completely a mess. And then <laughs> but then if I open up the doors and the windows and I threw that stuff all out of out of the building, <laughs> then like, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> I only do that on the weekend. (laughs) But that's just, right? Like, so our body has these compartments where toxins are stored to sequester them away from where they're going to do the most damage. So usually it stores in fat. Then it gets kind of riled up and maybe it goes to the liver or the kidney or the urine. But we have to make sure that we can get it out of our fat, get it out of our blood so that the liver and the kidney again, with the right nutrition background, can actually successfully eliminate. The coolest thing about that to me is, is that the body can eliminate these man-made chemicals. They weren't part of, I mean, they're, they're synthesized. It's amazing. So we, we have detoxification systems built into our cells to detoxify the normal metabolic toxins that are produced, the oxidative damage of just living, the oxidative damage of exercise, of breathing, right? Of taking in charred meat <laughs> and we can also eliminate the other sort of scarier toxins that are known endocrine disruptors that interrupt DNA health and that, you know, that negative effects are known to show up in future generations because of the impact of epigenetics, which is everything that's to do with exposures, whether positive or negative on the expression of our genes. And that's why detoxification is so important. It's one, to help with your fertility in the moment. The hormones that you have are the hormones that you should have. And also to help the next generation have a healthier DNA blueprint from the moment of fertilization. And then, of course, through, throughout pregnancy, there's a lot of influences on the developing fetal genome. And so we want to make sure mom is as clean and clear of those toxins as much as possible. There's no, there's never going to be a zero. That's okay. Mm -hmm. We don't know that it has to be zero though. And again, the body is built to deal with a certain amount of ambient toxins. We already have that going on in our cells. Even if we lived in a garden of Eden environment, 
but then to also help protect that developing child from the toxic influences. I mean, there's chemicals that have been associated with development of autism, development of ADHD, with the development of mental health conditions in children. These are serious. We need to take them seriously. So detox is definitely, definitely important for, for food, for our water, for our personal care, for our work environments. The more that we can dial down our exposure and dial up our nutrition, the better off our future babies will be, but also, of course, our fertility success. So when we're talking about this, so I know that so many people will be listening to this and like nodding their head at everything that you say and feeling like, yes, this is so important, I need to do this, but then it comes back to you know, like you and I talk and we're like, giving up gluten and dairy isn't that hard. But for some people, it's actually really fucking hard. Like it's just the whole infertility is just a mind fuck. It's overwhelming. And I know that you will be dealing with this all the time in your clinic. And that's that the science and the logic is one thing. Then there's the mindset, which is Mm -hmm. like the, like surely nearly 50% of what you do would be helping women with the way that they're thinking in order to be able to progress forward with these changes. Can you talk to me about how often, you know, you are dealing with mindset and things like that and, you know, what I guess you teach women? Yeah, absolutely. We do that. That is the foundation. The very first thing that, that I have started to teach in my fertility empowerment program is this idea of an abundance mindset. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is one, having babies being fertile is like an abundant, it's like an expression of abundance, the way that I see it, right? And so often the fertility journey, like fertility challenges, puts us into a scarcity, an experience of scarcity. And that shows up in our hormones, that shows up in our mental health, our feelings, our like our lived experience through the lens of either scarcity or abundance literally affects our fertility because mm-hmm. it affects hormones. So in scarcity, we feel we have that experience of feeling trapped or helpless, like the physiology of a, being a victim or having guilt. And those kind of experiences create more cortisol in the brain or in the whole body. And that is like an opposite to a fertile state because fight or flight or chronic stress is something that your brain is literally designed to get you through first and foremost. And then, and only then when that stress is done, can you go into another state of the nervous system and hormone system that is rest, digest, procreate. It's a parasympathetic nervous system. It's kind of like AM and FM radio. It's all mm-hmm. radio. So we have one autonomic nervous system, but only one of those main sections gets to be dialed on at a time. Right. And so we're either in fight or flight mm-hmm. or we're in rest, digest, procreate. And so when we can organize our mindset to be the starting point and look at things in a different way, look at ourselves with love, look at our bodies with love and appreciation should see signs of your own fertility. Like every time you get a period, every time you ovulate, if you ovulate, 
every time you get menstrual cramps, those could be signs of your like cycle showing up for you as a sign that you have this feminine cycle that, you know, every month, if you're working on it, you might notice subtle changes in your cycles. That is a sign of abundance. That is a sign of shifting toward your design, your optimal design of being fertile, but also being abundant. It's kind of like a reframe for, let's say your, your friend is pregnant or, you know, you're, you see a pregnant woman walking down the street and that can be very difficult, right? When you mm-hmm. are trying to conceive yourself, but what if it's like, oh, thank you universe. Thank you for reminding me that I can get pregnant too. You know, thank you for her fertility showing up as a symbol that we all have what it takes. What if we could see things that way and not have to have it like a zero sum game? So if, you know, three of my friends are pregnant, therefore I can't be, it's, that's not true at all, but it puts us in a false state of the physiology of victimhood. Whereas I want you to feel in the physiology of, of the victory which is confidence, which is lower cortisol, higher serotonin, higher dopamine. You feel good. When your cortisol is lower, there's more space to make progesterone, which is pro-gestation, pro-pregnancy hormone, literally. And that's because the cortisol and progesterone and the other steroid hormones, like the sex hormones that make you have a healthy cycle, are built from the same mother molecule, pregnant alone. But again, if we're in survival mode, if the body perceives scarcity, risk, danger, threat, not enough for me, there's only enough for everyone else, right? I'm going to, there's not like that not enough physiology is very threatening to the system and your brain needs to get you out of that before it's going to allow a a fertile neuroendocrine or nervous system hormone state to come back on board. I love that. I always feel like everyone should just rewind that and listen to that again. (laughs) (laughs) So do you have any other tips for how to sort of take back power on our fertility journey? Yeah, I think one, so this is a little bit about the healthcare conversation, like women's experiences in healthcare in general have not always been empowered and they could have been traumatic. I have never had a specific trauma in a healthcare experience. However, and I'm a healthcare practitioner myself, but I honestly, I feel a little nervous when I'm in a medical Mm -hmm. clinic. It's just, it doesn't, it's not warm. It's not soft. Things are going to be done to you. You're going to be looked at and someone is going to tell you what they think about it. Like it's just, Mm -hmm. it's, you know, it's not the most pleasant or natural way of being in the world. And when you're working with specialists and investigations and as intensive medically as IVF or fertility challenges can end up being, if you choose to have those investigations, they will give you information that you can use to your advantage. So going into those healthcare experiences, feeling like your own best advocate or bringing someone with you who can be an advocate, who can be a presence in the room, who can create that safety right? So it's not just you versus the doctor kind of thing. Even if you like your doctor and they're a great person, it's not necessarily comfortable. And again, we go into that stressed state and we can't even take in all the information or remember our question. So write down your questions. 
feel empowered that this is your visit and you can ask whatever you want and this is your body. So things don't get, get done to you without your informed consent, which means that you fully understand the risks and benefits of doing or not doing a certain thing. This is basic stuff, but I want women to understand that they have that right that is built into like every doctor's code of ethics. It's the law. It's there's no way that they can deliver any service or treatment or or investigation without your consent. So that is really important to know. Um, and so just be organized. Have have your list of questions. Know that they have to provide all the information so that you feel comfortable with your choices and informed about them and, and bring someone with you if, if you want to have that extra level of just peace and camaraderie in the room. That would be where I would start on the empowerment theme. You know, when, you're, when we're talking about IVF, there are going to be a lot of medical experiences. So we want to make those ones that you're getting value out of it. And it's not just feeling like you're funneled through some system that lacks some humanity. This is you. You're an individual. And you have the right to absolutely to inform to consent. So important. Now, we're about to go into the speed round. But before you do, can you tell us, and we'll make sure that we add this to the show notes, but where everyone can find you, tell us about your clinic. We want to know, you know, like what's going on for you as well. Yeah. Um, my clinic is called Two Rivers Health and our website is tworivershealth.ca. Through that website, we have a, we have our, our appointments calendar. So if people are looking for help around fertility, I offer a free conception confidence call. And on the call, we talk about your situation. We get a sense for whether it's a fit to do some work together and what that would look like. And then we go from there. I know you have a global audience. Those calls are, are listed at this time in Eastern time. So you kind of have to do your conversion. So, so those are Eastern, which is Toronto time. And then I have a, a free Facebook group called Fertility Boost Camp. And that's for women who are looking for fertility positivity and support and community around their experience. And then I also help women entrepreneurs harness the power of the female brain and female physiology and apply that in developing their business success and their confidence. So those are kind of the things that since the book <laughs> have been my main like pots on the stove. Just a few. Yeah. <laughs> Keeping yeah. you busy. Yeah. So are you ready for the speed round? Yes, I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite quote or affirmation? Surrender is not the same as giving up. Mm. That's powerful. I feel like everybody needs to look a bit more into what surrender is because surrender is a beautiful thing. Mm. Um, what is one message that you wish you could just scream to people from the rooftops? <laughs> I would say, hey, ladies, oh, yes, you can have it all. <laughs> nice. Do you have a guilty pleasure? I I guess I would say like a good Netflix drama binge watch. Yeah. I decided to just try to stop feeling guilty per se, but mm -hmm. 
it's not like I go around saying, guess how many hours I watched drama. And that's like, <laughs> yeah. So, but it just helps me like feel like anything that's sort of, it's sort of intense in my own life. There's some stories out there showing that people have way more drama. And <laughs> feel like, oh, my life is so manageable. <laughs> yep. Do you have a book that you recommend everyone reads? Yeah, like probably a ton. But right now, um, the one that I'm reading again is um, You Are a Badass by Jen Sincero. Yeah, I think that is that you're working on. Yeah, yeah. that's hands yeah. down probably. If somebody ever asked me that question, that's well, that's the same book that I would choose. I freaking love nice. that, that book. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> Liz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I've, you know, love connecting with you on so many levels. Guys, Liz has provided us a masterclass in the membership all around egg health. She is, you know, like a regular contributor in these parts and she's such a font of knowledge, especially around fertility and I guess empowerment for women. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for sharing your expertise and guys, IVF meal plan is where it's at. Thanks, Robin. Thank you for listening to the Fertility Warriors podcast with me, your host, Robin Birkin. If you would like more tools, resources, and courses to help you survive your journey, please head to robinburkin.com. And if you like this podcast, please share it with others. I look forward to catching you at the next episode.